From New York, this is Democracy Now! This kind of attack was expected because of what the Israelis were doing in Gaza, what the uh, Ansar Allah group were doing in Yemen uh, with their missile attacks and drone attacks against ships, what the American Navy and Air Force have been doing in the Red Sea, attacking uh, Yemen. Uh, and this is part of a regional war. A drone strike at a base in Jordan near the Syrian and Iraq border kills three U.S. soldiers, injuring more than 30. The Pentagon's accusing Iran-backed militants, while Iran denies any involvement. We'll speak with Palestinian-American journalist Rami Khoury about U.S. Middle East policy. Then, hours after the International Court of Justice orders Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide in Gaza, arguments in another genocide case began in a U.S. federal court in Oakland against President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. We'll speak with a lawyer who helped bring the case and a Palestinian who testified. And as Israel intensifies attacks on southern Gaza, where displaced Palestinians have sought refuge, we'll speak with an emergency room physician who spent three weeks at a hospital in Khan Yunus. Nasser Hospital was recently the focus of very intense military campaign with bombing and gun clashes as well as tanks rolling in around the hospital vicinity. And hundreds of thousands of people fled from Khan Yunus further south to Rafah. And so the humanitarian crisis in Gaza has deepened. We'll also speak with the Norwegian Refugee Council's Jan Egland about the U.S. and 12 other nations suspending funding to UNRWA, the U.S. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, after Israel accuses 12 UNRWA employees of taking part in the Hamas attack on October 7th. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Pentagon's accused Iranian-backed militants of killing three U.S. soldiers and injuring 34 others in a drone strike at a base in Jordan near the Syrian and Iraq border. On Sunday, President Biden vowed the U.S. would respond, quote, at a time and in a manner of our choosing, unquote. The attack comes less than a month after a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad killed the head of an Iranian-backed militia. A group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility for attacking the U.S. forces in Jordan. Iran's denied any involvement. In a statement, the Islamic Resistance in Iraq said, quote, if the U.S. keeps supporting Israel, there'll be escalation. All U.S. interests in the region are legitimate targets, and we don't care about U.S. threats to respond, unquote. The drone strike was the first fatal attack on U.S. forces in the Middle East since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Two U.S. Navy SEALs died January 11th after going overboard while raiding a ship suspected of carrying Iranian arms off the coast of Somalia. In Gaza, Israeli attacks have killed at least 373 Palestinians since Friday, when the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to take all possible measures to prevent genocide in Gaza. In another major development, the United States and at least 12 other nations have suspended funding to UNRWA. That's the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, after Israel accused 12 employees of the agency of taking part in the Hamas attack on October 7th. 
UNRWA IS ONE OF THE LARGEST EMPLOYERS IN GAZA, WITH A STAFF OF OVER 13,000. IT PROVIDES ESSENTIAL AID TO MOST OF GAZA'S 2.3 MILLION RESIDENTS. THE AGENCY RESPONDED TO ISRAEL'S ALLEGATIONS BY FIRING NINE EMPLOYEES. THE HEAD OF UNRWA, PHILIPPE LAZARINI, CONDEMNED THE FREEZING OF FUNDS AT A TIME WHEN FAMINE IS LOOMING IN GAZA. HE SAID, QUOTE, PALESTINIANS IN GAZA DID NOT NEED THIS ADDITIONAL COLLECTIVE PUNISHMENT. THIS STAINS ALL OF US, HE SAID. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shdeya urged countries to reverse their decision to freeze UNRWA funds. The suspension of aid is in line with the Israeli plans for the forced evacuation of our people from Gaza into Egypt. The suspension of aid comes at the most difficult times, at a time when the International Court of Justice has called for an immediate supply and increase supplies and international aid into Gaza, UNRWA provide aid for 1.7 million Palestinians in Gaza. Norway is continuing to fund UNRWA. We'll speak with the head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Egland, later in the broadcast. In other news on Gaza, CIA Director William Burns is taking part in talks in Paris with officials from Israel, Egypt and Qatar over a proposed deal involving the release of Israeli hostages in Gaza in exchange for a two-month pause to Israel's assault. Thousands of Israelis gathered in Jerusalem on Sunday for a major conference calling for Palestinians to be removed from Gaza in order to rebuild Jewish settlements. Speakers at the conference included Israel's national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, and Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Shmotrich. We are settling our land from width to length, controlling it and fighting terror always and bringing, with God's help, security to all of Israel. You know what the answer is. Without settlement, there is no security. A group of Palestinian Americans asked a federal judge Friday to bar the United States from providing military, financial and diplomatic support to Israel for committing genocide in Gaza. The Biden administration asked the judge to dismiss the case, which was brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights. One of the lawyers in the case, Mark Vanderhut, spoke outside the federal courthouse in Oakland, California, Friday. We are very hopeful. We think the evidence was overwhelming. The government, the administration did not even contest, really, that there was genocide going on. They just say, judge, whatever is going on, whether it's 20,000 or 30,000 or 50,000 or 200,000 or 2.2 million people who are ultimately killed, you can't do anything, judge. Nobody can do anything. It's The president can do whatever the hell he wants. And what do we say to that? We say, hell no. In related news, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's urged the FBI to investigate pro-Palestinian protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Without sharing any evidence, Pelosi claimed on CNN the protesters may have ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Pelosi said, quote, for them to call for ceasefire is Putin's message. 
A federal jury ordered Donald Trump to pay E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million in damages for defaming her in 2019 while he was president of the United States. This comes on top of the $5 million in damages he was ordered to pay Carroll last year by another jury when he was found liable for sexually abusing her in the 1990s and defaming her. In a statement, E. Jean Carroll said, quote, This is a great victory for every woman who stands up when she's been knocked down and a huge defeat for every bully who's tried to keep a woman down, unquote. Trump said he will appeal Friday's ruling. Meanwhile, in a separate case, a judge is expected to rule this week on a $370 million civil fraud suit uh, brought against Trump by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The Biden administration approved a $23 billion deal to sell F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. The State Department notified Congress of its decision Friday, just days after Turkish lawmakers voted to allow Sweden to join NATO. A Kenyan court blocked a plan to send 1,000 Kenyan police officers to Haiti to help combat gang violence, ruling the move was unconstitutional. The U.N. Security Council approved the mission last year. Kenyan forces were due to deploy as early as this month. In Haiti, the reaction to the news was mixed, as some residents have called for foreign intervention amidst the spiraling violence. Others have rejected any outside actors coming to Haiti. The crisis is a Haitian crisis. I remember in 2005 through 2006, when the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti arrived in Haiti. They left behind children, diseases like cholera, and they left many children without dads. Today, if we are united, we can do wonders. Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso announced they are withdrawing from ECOWAS. That's the Economic Community of West African States. All three countries are led by military governments following coups in recent years. The nations released a joint statement accusing the 15-country bloc of being, quote, under the influence of foreign powers, betraying its founding principles and becoming a threat to its member states and its population, unquote. Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso have expelled the military of their former colonizer France and were already suspended by ECOWAS in the wake of the military takeovers. In a major victory for the climate movement, the Biden administration Friday paused approvals for new liquefied natural gas, or LNG, export terminals. The move comes after years of organizing by activists and frontline Gulf communities who've decried the projects as carbon megabombs. This is Rochetta Sibley-Ozan of the environmental justice organization The Vessel Project. Being a mom of six children living in this community where my children have asthma and other skin conditions that they are battling every day, I know that these facilities are not in the public interest. Living in a community that smells like rotten eggs and chemicals, I know that these facilities are not in the public interest. But this pause is not just a minor achievement. It is a significant milestone. It sets the stage for potential rejections and slows down the progress of these projects. And in related news, a Louisiana court okayed environmental permits for a new Formosa plastics facility in St. James Parish. 
It would be the country's largest plastics plant. The area located along the Mississippi River is already known as Cancer Alley due to the many toxic chemical plants that have sickened the majority black population. Residents and activists have vowed to keep fighting the proposed Formosa plant. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The first U.S. troops have been killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since Hamas attacked Israel October 7th. The Pentagon's accusing Iranian-backed militants of killing three U.S. soldiers in a drone strike at a base in Jordan along the Syrian border. The attack reportedly also injured 34 other U.S. troops. On Sunday, President Biden vowed the U.S. would respond, quote, at a time and in a manner of our choosing, unquote. The attack comes less than a month after a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad killed the head of an Iranian-backed militia. A group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility for the attack and released video of the attack, it says, shows the group attacking the American military base. In a statement, the group said, quote, if the U.S. keeps supporting Israel, there will be escalations. All U.S. interests in the region are legitimate targets, and we don't care about U.S. threats to respond, they say. For more, we're joined by Rami Khoury, Palestinian-American journalist, senior public policy fellow at American University of Beirut. His recent piece for Al Jazeera headlined, Watching the Watchdogs, the five Ds of U.S. Middle East policy, Washington's delusion, denial, dishonesty, distortion and diversion have had disastrous consequences for the region. Rami, welcome back to Democracy Now! So if you can talk about this latest attack, um, three U.S. soldiers dead, 34 wounded, uh, the wounded being medevaced back to the United States. Talk about the significance of who's claimed responsibility and what this means for a possible escalating regional conflict. Thank you. Glad to be with you again. <clears throat> and uh, great to see a show like yours doing such a wide range of coverage of important issues, uh, which is rare on American TV. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. So I would say that uh, the significance here is uh, several uh, fold. First of all, the people who did this attack, the Americans blame a certain group in uh, Iraq uh, funded or backed by Iran. There's dozens of these groups all over uh, the region. Uh, there's almost as many of these groups around the region as there are American military bases around the region. I think there's something like 30 or 35 American military bases with something like 30,000, 40,000 uh, troops. And of course, when you add the ones that come in on the aircraft carriers, uh, it's more than that. So what you have to see this, you have to see this in the context of a regional situation with many American military installations, some of them killing and attacking Arabs and others, some of them are not. And you have to see the groups from uh, Arab countries official state groups and uh, non-state actors like Hezbollah and Hamas and Ansarullah. That's the context in which we have to, uh, to see this. There are so many potential people who could have done this attack, uh, uh, which should make us wonder about why are there so many people who are potential attackers. Uh, it's because they see the American presence link very close to what Israel is doing in Palestine. They see this as a threat, and they come right out and say it. The thing about the Islamic resistance in Iraq, like the uh, resistance axis, which is the broader Middle East coalition of Hezbollah, Hamas, Ansarullah, and Yemen, uh, the Islamic groups and uh, resistance groups in Syria and Iraq, their significance is that they come right out and they've 
said it so many times. We're not scared of being attacked. We're not um, um, put off by the U.S. and um, and Israeli threats. We're defending our, our territory. And if we're aggressed against, we're going to uh, fight back. This is unusual um, uh, in this region, but it's going on all the time. The, the Ansar Allah and Yemen have been saying the same thing. The U.S. went in there with and the U.K., the uh, the two great colonial powers in the Middle East of the last century, uh, both have been attacking Ansarullah targets uh, in Yemen, and the Ansarullah people say, you know, go ahead, attack, we don't care, and they keep uh, attacking back and hitting uh, ships and, um, and and trying to fire other places as well. So that's the context that we we have to look at. Uh, um, and it's some of it is linked to Gaza, some of it was there before Gaza, which is another important uh, thing. And the, the Ansarullah in, uh, in Yemen and others have said, look, if the U.S. stops actively supporting the genocidal um, savage moves of Israel and Gaza, uh, we will uh, stop attacking American uh, targets. Um, it is significant that this is the first direct strike that killed uh, three Americans, uh, but that's uh, not as significant as the, as the, as the broader picture that uh, we have to look at. Rami Khoury, can you talk about the other countries and their response and where they stand vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Israel? For example, Jordan. I listened to the Jordan deputy prime minister yesterday saying this did not happen on Jordanian soil. It happened in Syria. But in fact, it looks like it did happen in Jordan and why that was relevant, because, of course, they're all very close right there on the border. As he said, if it happened on Jordanian soil, they would consider it an act of war. Yeah, um, Jordan uh, tries to stay out of these big conflicts. It's a small country. Uh, it has quite a sophisticated military capability. They spend a lot of money and attention on their security services, both internally and uh, regionally, their intelligence services, their technical capabilities, um, special forces, things like that. Um, and, and they try to not get directly involved in large-scale warfare, but to do a little... Um, you know, strategic pinpoint actions when necessary, either to protect themselves or to help uh, their allies like the U.S. and, uh, and, and others. Uh, it's hard to know uh, exactly where this attack came from. If the U.S. intelligence agencies have the information, they should, should make it public so people stop speculating. Uh, but Jordan is um, a country with a huge uh, territory on the borders with three, four countries, and it's very hard to patrol it. By the way, I know that area in northeastern Jordan quite well. I spent uh, many, many days there years ago, and I was writing books on archaeology, and I lived in Jordan. And there's two things I think people should recognize about this area. Uh, first of all, if you look at that aerial uh, photograph, which you showed, uh, of the camp, uh, Tower 2, I think it's called, if you look at that photograph, then you go back into the archaeological uh, journals and look at pictures, aerial photographs of Roman and Byzantine camps that archaeologists have mapped in surveys, you find exactly the same thing. And this is a sign that these kinds of foreign military installations inside the region, especially on peripheral border areas, don't have a long lifestyle. Um, and they uh, will be abandoned because the local people don't want them there. Mm -hmm. um, so that the second thing I'd say, that area is really fascinating because, uh, you know, people call it a desolate desert area. It's a, a, a desert area now because of climate change and uh, overgrazing and things like that. 
But this was a strategically important region in the beginning of, of modern civilization as we know it in the Bronze Age. There's people who think that the Abraham's path came uh, through here um, the, uh, on, the, on his way into the, uh, what's known as the Promised Land. Uh, that this is an area developed early urbanism in the Bronze Age, walled large towns, sophisticated water systems, showing the human capabilities that have been in this area for about 5,000 years. Uh, so those are just two little side, side points I'd like to uh, throw in there. I have a last question. Um, Trita Parsi, one of the heads of the Quincy Institute, um, a well-known Iranian-American author and analyst, um, talking about the U.S. soldiers who died, said they didn't die defending U.S. interests. They died defending Biden's refusal to press Israel for a ceasefire. Their lives were put at risk by Biden to defend Israel's ability to continue its carnage in Gaza. Um, if you could respond to that, and among other things, a thousand black pastors across the political spectrum, representing hundreds of thousands of congregants in the black community in the United States, calling on Biden, who are normally mainly constituents of Biden, supporters of Biden, for a ceasefire. Um, this issue of rather than doing what the Republicans like Lindsey Graham and uh, Senator Cornyn are calling for, bomb Iran, um, are saying, go the other way as a result of this. Yeah, those are, those are two really important points. Um, um, uh, on, on the point of the, uh, the black pastors, uh, and they represent, I think, around um, a couple of hundred thousand uh, parishioners, uh, they now join the Arab-American and Muslim-American groups uh, located all over the country with a epicenter in Michigan who are also telling Biden uh, the same thing, that we're not going to vote for you if you keep uh, uh, being a, a, a part of the genocide in, uh, in, uh, in Gaza that Israel is performing. So this is significant because it's showing us that American politicians really don't care about morality or the law. They care about electoral incumbency and staying in power, which is probably what all politicians do, to be fair. Americans are no different. Uh, so this is a question now that is raised with the death of the three Americans, and I think 24 injured. Uh, and there'll be more of these attacks, for sure. Because keep in mind, the, the axis of resistance and these groups, the Islamic resistance uh, in Iraq and, and in Syria, openly say, attack us, we don't care, you're not going to frighten us. And this is unusual. So... The question is, are American troops now in uh, the Red Sea, uh, in Iraq, possibly in other places, dying for the sake of Israel? Israel wants an American-Iranian confrontation. They've openly tried to do it, and the Americans have been thoughtful, unusually, in the Middle East by resisting a full-scale war uh, with Iran. But the question becomes, all these actions, uh, are they for the sake of Israel? And not just Israel, but a right-wing fascist majority that, that now is... Uh, has been said by the UN's highest court, the world's highest court, to be involved in genocide? Or is this really about U.S. strategic interests? U.S. strategic interests have not been well served uh, by the 35, 40 military bases the U.S. has around the region. And remember this Islamic resistance in Iraq and Syria? It emerged out of the, of the uh, destruction that happened in, uh, in Iraq after the American invasion. Uh, of Iraq, the top of Saddam Hussein, the chaos that happened after that, uh, created a lot of these groups. Some of them were tribal, some of them were ideological, some of them were 
uh, Iranian link. Uh, some of them were American supported. They're all, you know, they're, they have all kinds of patrons. But all of this goes back to what the U.S. did in Iraq to a very large uh, extent. And therefore, the U.S. really needs uh, to listen to people like Trita Parsi and others to, to look at what are we doing in, uh, in the Middle East. Is this really the best thing for America's well-being? Uh, or are we serving the interests of Israelis? And if we are, why are we doing that? Uh, is it, and as the black pastors are suggesting, is it maybe for electoral purposes? Is it for selfish political reasons? Uh, in the U.S., these linkages now are becoming much more clear. They're controversial. They're sensitive. Uh, but they, they have to be addressed. And there is a possibility to stop all this militarism, which is the uh, ceasefire that can be installed now quickly if the U.S. wants and then moving quickly to a permanent peace negotiation, which will require new leaders in Israel and, and in Palestine and other places, more credible leaders, uh, but a negotiated peace that resolves the fundamental Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the wider Arab-Israeli conflict, which will not, long, will not need uh, 35, 40 American bases and constant, never-ending warfare. And this is... This process is going to go on. It's going to keep expanding if we're if we're not careful. I don't think we're going to get to a full-fledged war with Iran and, and, and Hamas and Hezbollah and others fighting against the U.S. and Israel. That would be a catastrophe for the whole region. I don't think we're going to get there. But what we have now is a low-intensity, uh, 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 di diversified regional warfare, and I think that's going to continue. Rami Khoury, I want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian-American journalist, senior policy, public policy fellow at American University of Beirut, speaking to us from Boston. Up next, hours after the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to prevent genocide in Gaza, another genocide case was brought against the Biden administration. It was heard in Oakland, California. Stay with us. If I could speak to a younger me, I would rewrite my history and tell me that you're beautiful because you're alive. She always want to have blue eyes, and oxymoron like true lies. Fighting demons inside, using lightning and cream to hide her complexion, killing and suffering her inside. She couldn't handle the sunshine. Her skin developed the cancer in the enzymes. What she thought was the answer had now threatened to cancel the melanin that's protecting her. It's a thin line, deeply affected her when her husband died. Her innermost insecurities got magnified. African woman lost in the shadow of white supremacy. With a light of your skin, to be it be glorified. Generations and centuries we've been victimized. Started viewing ourselves through our oppressor's eyes. Blue Eyes by Vic Mensa. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Just hours after the International Court of Justice in The Hague ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide in Gaza, but stopped short of calling for a ceasefire, a hearing in another genocide case began here in the United States. The Center for Constitutional Rights first filed the case in November against President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. 
for three hours on Friday in a federal courtroom in Oakland, California. Palestinians and Americans testified in person and by phone from Gaza about the Biden administration's failure to prevent what they called the, quote, unfolding genocide in Gaza. Lawyers for the Biden administration say the court lacks proper jurisdiction to decide the case, which they argue is a matter of foreign policy. <clears throat> the judge said, quote, this probably is the most difficult case factually that this court has ever had. For more, we're joined by two guests. Leila Haddad is a Palestinian writer and journalist from Gaza who testified in court Friday, author of Gaza Mom, Palestine Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between, and co-editor of the book Gaza Unsilenced with Rafat Alarir, the Palestinian academic and activist killed in December by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza, along with his brother, his sister, and her four children. Also joining us is Diala Shamas, senior state attorney, staff attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Diala, why don't you start off by laying out the case? Thank you for having me, Amy. Yeah, so we filed this case in November, um, laying out all of the ways in which the U.S. government, this Biden administration in particular, President Biden, Secretaries Blinken and Austin, um, have failed in their duty to prevent an unfolding genocide in Gaza, but also um, are complicit in a genocide in Gaza. And um, we, a couple of days after filing our complaint, sought a preliminary injunction, which is essentially an emergency order, um, laying, saying to the court, you know, the, the stakes here are so high. The harms to our plaintiffs, the Palestinians um, who are plaintiffs in this case, and we have um, two human rights organizations with staff in Gaza that are plaintiffs, along with a number of individuals, some of whom are Palestinian Americans with families in Gaza, many of whom have been killed and displaced and are, you know, suffering all of the conditions that we have all come to know all too well. Um, and we also have plaintiffs in Gaza, um, Palestinians who are, you know, currently displaced um, and who've also um, suffered injuries and uh, loss of relatives. Um, and and in our motion for preliminary injunction, we essentially tell the court, um, unless the court intervenes now and issues an urgent, some urgent relief, um, the, the harm to these people, these Palestinians, will be so irreparable. And so we need some urgent action pending the sort of resolution um, of the litigation, which always, of course, takes um, much longer time. And so the hearing, uh, the government filed a motion to dismiss as well as an opposition to, you know, our motion seeking that uh, urgent relief. And we had that hearing on Friday, which you were just describing, a really remarkable hearing in many ways. Um, I think in large part, you know, one of the most remarkable aspects was as far as I can tell, as far as I'm aware of, um, we've been, you know, litigating Palestine related cases and just been a student of them for decades. And um, I can't think of another time where in a U.S. federal court, Palestinians have been on the witness stand one after the other after the other describing, you know, their experiences under um, Israeli occupation uh, uninterrupted 
um, in a way that offers a holistic, complete, and complicated accounting of what has been happening to Palestinians. And in this case, not just uh, over the course of the last 16 weeks since the latest assault and this unfolding genocide started, but um, really kind of placing it in a broader context. Uh, every single one of our um, plaintiffs got up there. And in order to explain the impact to the court, to the judge um, of the current moment, and Israeli calls for Nakba now had to explain um, the history of the Nakba. I've never heard the word Nakba be said in federal court so many times. And it was an important part of their telling because uh, to because they were there to they were tasked with you know describing the urgency and the harm and the injury that they are experiencing, and it is of course a multi layered harm. And in order to explain how they even got to Gaza in the first place, they have to explain their family's history as refugee as a refugee population, the fragmentation of Palestinians. Um, so there was so much that was really remarkable about the hearing, um, but that. It really stands out to me as one of the, the and, major aspects. And Yala, if you can quickly say, how did the um, preliminary judgment of the uh, International Court of Justice in The Hague uh, weigh in uh, and inform uh, the case that you brought? Because it happened right after on Friday, as they said, Israel has to prevent a genocide in Gaza. And also the significance of the judge saying this is the most difficult case he'll ever have to decide. Yeah, so as you as you said, mere hours after the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, issued its order, we, uh, you know, it was 4 a.m. California time. Our hearing started at 9 a.m., we reviewed it as fast as we could, submitted it to the court because it was, of course, relevant um, and hadn't really had the time to fully process it. But walking into that hearing with the sort of validation in many ways, although we all, I think, knew exactly in some ways we didn't need the validation, but that, that the international court, that the world court had found that there was you know, a plausible case of, of genocide um, that required the, the order that it issued um, with the provisional measures was significant, that the judge took note of it. Um, and in many ways, we're in similar postures in our, in, our, in our federal court proceeding as that International Court of Justice proceeding, which is the provisional measures um, at the international court level also just sought to, to get these urgent provisional measures um, at a showing of plausibility. So we don't have time to have the full uh, litigation on the merits because it, by the time we come around, the damage will be done and there will be nobody left to save. And so uh, that's why we, we got that order from the ICJ. Um, and we're making the similar arguments to, to the court here. We just need these these this preliminary injunction now. Um, 
and then we can litigate this. Uh, I, w- I want to bring I want to bring in Leila Al Haddad. You're a Palestinian writer and journalist from Gaza. Um, <clears throat> you are the co-editor of a book with Rafat Al Arir, who was killed in Gaza only recently. Well-known, acclaimed writer and academic in Gaza. Um, you are the author of Gaza Mom: Palestine Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between. Speaking to us though from near. Baltimore today. What did you testify in court on Friday, Leila? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I and other um, plaintiffs who spoke in a personal capacity, not the organizational plaintiffs, about how this ongoing genocide and particularly U.S. complicity in it has impacted our, our families in Gaza and, of course, our families here as well. So I started off by <clears throat> introducing myself. Excuse me, as you can see, it's been a long weekend. My voice is completely gone. Um, I spoke about my family, both in Gaza City and in the south of Gaza in Yunis. And um, I started off by talking about how Israel had uh, killed multitudes of them on my mother's side. I believe the number is now 86. And um five of my immediate family members in Gaza City and had uh, displaced the rest of them to multiple location and how Israel was responsible for starving them and depriving them of uh, basic human needs and, and so on, all with active U.S. support, with U.S. weapons and with U.S. financial support and with U.S. diplomatic support. I spoke about my aunt and my adult cousins and my cousin's wife in Gaza City. I had finally had a chance after three months to uh, get the full details from the surviving brother, uh, who is now, I mean, even his whereabouts now are unknown after a heavy night of Israeli bombardment on Gaza City. But he was telling me how he um, he had to, on his own, um, retrieve um, his sister's body parts, half of his mother, because he couldn't retrieve the other half, how he had to bury them himself with his own hands in a mass grave, how his sister's body, my cousin, was still unaccounted for under the rubble, and how he himself was severely injured, and how his brother, um, my my other cousin, bled to death because he couldn't even access uh, medical care. They couldn't get paramedics to the area. Um, so it was very heavy, very heavy and very painful but also very urgent. And that was part of the point is to speak about how we have not had the luxury as Palestinians and particularly Palestinians from Gaza to grieve. We have not had that luxury and we recognize uh, how being Palestinians in America um, necessitates um, our, our involvement in this case, how it obligates us to do everything we can to take every possible recourse, including including legal recourse to try and, and put an end to this, since it's our tax dollars who who are um, being put to work and, and American weaponry, as I said, um, and so on. <clears throat> and this latest attack on Khan Yunus, as you have many family members, there are so many of the people now who are being told to leave Khan Yunus, they have moved repeatedly. Um, thinking that each next place was a safe zone, now being forced to Rafah, to the border, to the sea. <clears throat> Where are your family members, and what do you hope will come out of this? 
they are without exaggeration everywhere, like, like everyone else. And I, and I hate to keep saying that, but I sometimes not to trivialize, but I feel like you look at someone else and then you say, well, at least their situation's a little better, but truth be told, um, the entire situation is just, um, beyond description, horrific. And, um, every morning when I, you know, look at my feed and my WhatsApp and communicate with my family members, I try not to ask even, you know, how they're doing, but I know that they, they derive hope from knowing that we are all doing something here to speak out about what's happening. And, and that, again, was one of the main motiva- motivating factors behind being involved in this lawsuit. But my family, <clears throat> several of them are actually still in Gaza City. They haven't left since the very beginning. I have um, two direct cousins there and their husbands and all of their children are um, one of them is in, in front of the uh, Nasser Hospital in Gaza City. The others are in Rimal. Uh, my one cousin was in the Shifa compound and then um, decided to go to another re- neighborhood in Rimal with his family. I don't even know where, on the streets somewhere, because his home was destroyed. Um, my eldest uncle, who's blind and deaf, um, with his son and family, are in central Gaza, in Zawaida, near the Maghazi refugee camp. And my mother's family were in Khanyunis, as you mentioned. And then... Um, um, are now in Mawasi. Uh, and so I haven't been able to communicate them with them in, for a while, but one of the cousins I was, and her home in Garada was destroyed, and she's now with her four children, um, literally under a nylon tarp because they couldn't even find a tent, and her husband, um, who has cancer. And um, yeah, as it's, it's a little, I mean, for those who aren't familiar, Mawasi is literally a sandy enclave, almost like sand dunes, directly uh, adjacent to the beach. So there's, I mean, there's nothing there um, beyond the seawater and and whatever tents you might have access to. And now, of course, with uh, aid being cut by by several countries, including the United States, which, as it's been said, uh, Blinken did not hesitate within a matter of seconds to shut that aid off. And yet for more than three months, uh, Palestinians have been enduring an ongoing genocide, uh, which the United States not only has refused to stop, but is actively aiding and abetting. Uh, and despite overwhelming evidence, including, you know, President Biden himself acknowledging the attacks have been discriminated or some of the bombings have been discriminated, um, despite overwhelming evidence about, despite the intent and by stated intent by Israeli leaders, um, that th- there are no innocents in Gaza, that this was intended to make Gaza unlivable, Layla. still has not that. <clears throat> We're going to talk about that cutting off of aid to UNRWA in our next segment. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Leila Haddad, Palestinian writer-journalist from Gaza, and Yala Shemis, a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Next up, we speak to an emergency room physician just back from Khan Yunus and with the head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Egland. Norway is saying it will not cut off aid to UNRWA, despite the fact U.S. and 12 other countries are doing so. Stay with us. In the saddest thing under the sun above is to say goodbye to the ones you love. Oh, 
The Saddest Thing by Melanie, Melanie Safka. The folk singer rose to fame from Woodstock 1969, died last week at the age of 76. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to conditions in southern Gaza's Khan Yunus area, where displaced Palestinians who fled there to seek refuge are reporting heavy aerial and tank fire as Israel intensifies its ground defense of around two main hospitals there. We're joined in Chicago by Dr. Ther Ahmoud an emergency room physician just back after spending three weeks in Gaza, volunteering at Al Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, board member for Med Global, which has an office in Gaza, is working with the World Health Organization. Dr. Appa just returned to Chicago Thursday, where he's the global health director of his hospital, also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Dr. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us what you experienced in Khan Yunus at the hospital. Hospital. Hospitals that has surgical capabilities. You have thousands of people sheltering inside of the hospital, families sheltering right around the hospital in the area of the medical complex. And what I saw was relentless bombing that was taking place day and night. You saw many people who were injured, many of whom were children, many were of people who were just trying to go about their regular day, looking for where their next meal would come from, looking for where they could attain water. And in the process of doing so, they were hit by tank shells or by airstrikes or by sniper fire. It was really horrific and overwhelming. I mean, I work at a level one trauma center in Chicago, and the south side of Chicago is no stranger to to trauma or to gang violence. This was something that was on a level that I don't think uh, many people in America have ever experienced. Every aspect of life in Gaza has been affected, has been disrupted, has been made harder. And you really felt that while you were in the hospital. The physicians that I was working alongside have been working nonstop for nearly four months. They also are hungry. They also are concerned about where they can get clean water from. Their families have been displaced multiple times. And they're being asked to take care of waves and waves of people who are coming in as victims of bomb strikes or tank shellings. You saw children walking around the complex barefoot. They looked like they were hungry looking for for food. Um, They were trying to just find some sort of refuge. They're not going to school. They're not getting vaccinated. They're not going to their regular appointments. And what we saw on on the nights when it was really intensifying is a mass migration of people. I remember looking outside of the hospital window and seeing a four-year-old girl holding onto her pillow and her dad hurriedly trying to grab whatever he could, and they were going to flee on foot further south, probably would have to walk five or six miles in the middle of the night, 3 or 4 a.m., as you heard F-16s above head and the relentless bombing taking place. And I thought... This, this, is, this can't be real. This is not a, a something that I would expect in 2024, something to be happening. And I think that part of what we're seeing is, uh, you know, that these people are consistently being dehumanized and re-traumatized. So it's very simple to just say people are being asked to evacuate. People are being asked to go to a safer place. But what I realized very quickly and what the doctors in Gaza told me is that there is no place in Gaza that's safe. There's nowhere that you can take refuge. No place has been spared from bombing. And just because there might be an intense military campaign taking place in Khan Yunus like, it, like there was, it doesn't mean that Rafah, which is further south, would be any safer and wouldn't and be subject to any sort of bombing. And that the people in the north of Gaza were also suffering immensely. I mean, I was there in the midst of a eight-day telecommunications blackout. And I remember the doctor 
doctors there who were asked to work these 24-hour shifts thinking about their families and not knowing what was going to take place or not knowing if they were okay, not knowing if they had eaten for the day. Um, and so that's something that I think was uh, really traumatizing to experience secondhand, and I was only there for less than three weeks. This Re- is what they've had to deal with for four months. Reports are from the UN at least 300 healthcare workers have been killed in Gaza. Um, also, Al Jazeera um, speaking to a doctor at Nasser Hospital where you were, Dr. Ahmed, and Khan Yunus uh, said 95% of staff fled to Rafah as Israeli forces, quote, bomb anything in front of them. Um, so how many people are taking refuge in Nasser in addition to the wound? How many dead bodies are piling up and how many medical staff are left? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's something that was that was noticeably thinning every single day that the military assault was taking place in Khan Yunus, that more and more staff had to leave the hospital to go take care of their families and make sure their families were safe. You can say that there was probably uh, two dozen uh, in terms of medical staff and doctors as well as nurses. I just want to point out that None of these physicians or nurses have been paid also for the last four months. They received one payment of $200 in November. They otherwise are volunteering, essentially, and just trying to serve their people. And in the process of that, as you mentioned, many of them have been subjected to violence, have been killed. Many have been arrested as well. And so that was one of the concerns that when we were in Khan Yunis and there was some serious, intense bombing taking place, is you saw that there was this sort of tension that existed. And I remember trying to say, you know, I think the hospital should be safe. And they very quickly said, what would make you think that a Nasser hospital in Khan Yunus is any different than Shifa in Gaza City or an Indonesia hospital or any of the other hospitals that have been attacked? What happens is while these attacks are taking place, as you mentioned, People who have been killed, their bodies are left in the street. And it's very dangerous for any sort of first responder to be able to go and try to retrieve the body or to try to bring somebody who's wounded. So many people may die in the process. And so you see healthcare workers digging mass graves to be able to bury some of the wounded there. And there are thousands of people sheltering in the hospital. Amy, if you were to walk in NASA hospital to go to any floor, you see people in every inch and every corner. They may have this small, thin mattress or a blanket over them, family families congregating together because they assume that the hospital can be a sanctuary. And time and time again, that has been proven incorrect in Gaza. And so again, people have no choice. They have nowhere left to go. And the hospital staff are overworked. And I understand that there's this notion that, you know, the people of Gaza are different. And I experienced that. They are so resilient and they are so impressive from every single uh, uh, corner or every single angle. They're able to do so much with uh, so little resources and they are phenomenal physicians and healthcare workers. But why are we insisting that we keep pushing them to their limit, to the maximum limit? Why do we keep trying to test their superhuman capabilities? That's something that I found really disturbing um, while I was there. Dr. Thera Ahmed, we're going to ask you to stay after the show. We're going to continue our conversation with your eyewitness report on the ground in Gaza, now just back in Chicago, emergency room physician, um, volunteered at Al-Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Palestinian officials and human rights groups are denouncing the move by the United States and at least 12 other countries to temporarily suspend funding to UNRWA.
That's the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees. After Israel accused 12 UNRWA employees of helping Hamas stage the October 7th attack, nine of the employees have been fired. UNRWA said two of the accused employees are dead. UNRWA is one of the largest employers in Gaza, with a staff of over 13,000. It provides aid to most of Gaza's 2.3 million residents. The agency's long been targeted by Israel. Since Israel's assault on Gaza began, over 150 UNRWA staffers have been killed. Francesca Albanese, U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territory, said on social media, quote, the day after ICJ concluded that Israel's plausibly committing genocide in Gaza, some states decide to defund UNRWA, collectively punishing millions of Palestinians at the most critical time and most likely violating their obligations under the Genocide Convention, unquote. Meanwhile, UNRWA chief Philippe Lazzarini condemned the freezing of the funds at a time when famine looms in Gaza. He said, quote, Palestinians in Gaza did not need the additional collective punishment. This stains all of us, he said. And the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has urged donor nations to continue supporting UNRWA. For more, we're going to Oslo, Norway, where we're joined by Jan Eglund, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Norway's decided to continue its funding of UNRWA. Um, Jan, thanks so much for being with us. Can you start off by responding to the cutting off at fu of funding at a time when, uh, among other things, uh, Gaza is under bombardment and is on the edge of famine? Yeah, it's the worst possible reaction to these allegations that some, I mean, maybe a dozen of the 13,000 UNRWA aid workers betrayed our humanitarian principles of neutrality and independence and participated in the horrific attacks on, on Israel. That, however, was met immediately with the response of UNRWA by, as you said, firing these uh, staff and now having an independent investigation. What the donors did, the US, the UK, Germany, Italy, Finland, Netherlands, uh, Australia, and some others, did was to cut all aid to the children of Gaza, to the women in Gaza, to the completely innocent uh, there. It's the worst possible move at the time when this trapped population is under bombardment. Do not punish the many innocent for the sins of a few who did very wrong, it seems. Now, it'll be interesting to see if Israel hands over the evidence um, for the U.N. to investigate this situation, because we're talking about an immediate cutoff by many of these nations suspending weapons. I wanted to read you a clip of the former Israeli official Noga Arbel, who said it'll be impossible to win the war if we do not destroy UNRWA, um, and this destruction must begin immediately. Uh, the prime minister, Netanyahu, said there will be no UNRWA in post-war Gaza. Your response, Jan Eglund. And talk about the—you're the head of a large um, aid, humanitarian aid group. How important is UNRWA to all of the groups, not to mention the people on the ground? UNRWA is completely essential. I mean, it's true that I, I, I lead the NRC, Norwegian Refugee Council, where large— Humanitarian group across the world were on all sides of all conflict li lines for the displaced and the refugees. And we've been in Gaza for two decades. We've been funded all over the world by the United States and by four 
the other donor nations and, and international agencies. In Gaza, we have to recognize that all of us combined other groups are not even close to be what UNRWA is for the, the people of Gaza. UNRWA was a response to the creation of Israel and the 1948 war that displaced so many of the original Palestinian population to Gaza, to the West Bank and elsewhere. UNRWA was then created to give them relief and works. Since then, there's not been a political peaceful settlement. And that is because the international community has not been able to force the parties, Israel and the Palestinians, to settle this uh, conflict. And thereby, we end up by having humanitarian groups like, first and foremost, UNRWA, provide for the population. So to undermine and undercut UNRWA as extremists within the Israeli government uh, are, are doing is basically to say we, we're, we're going to punish the, the women and children, the innocent on the other side for what some extremists have done in a situation of utter turmoil and perpetuous conflict that we're not ourselves willing to try to settle with talks on, on, on a future. It's, it, it's, it's, it's very wrong. And the international donors must stay with the humanitarian organizations like Norway did. Norway is a large donor, giving much more per capita to Palestinians and elsewhere than any other donor. We stay with, uh, with uh, UNRWA and we say, good that you terminated all of those contracts and fired these people, and good that there is an internet investigation, and then we'll draw the conclusions what we should do for the future. Jan Eglund, uh, what evidence is there of Israel's charges? Um, have they handed over the evidence? Uh, I, as far as I know, it's not been received by UNRWA or by the UN investigators. I hope they will be received so that they can do a thorough investigation of this. Very serious allegations. I read about them in the New York Times. Um, and, and if it's true, again, they betrayed all of our principles, really. Neutrality, impartiality, etc. That is so important for us who are unarmed humanitarian workers in the crossfire uh, around the world. But, of course, no one who's working across the Middle East can guarantee that there are not people within our midst that may, in the end, have hidden agendas. Palestinians cannot do that. Israeli cannot do that. We know of many Israelis who've done very bad things in Gaza, shooting at people with white flags. It's documented in detail. They've even shot their own people with, with, with uh, uh, white uh, flags. Uh, they, uh, they have settler organizations, mafia-style settler organizations, displacing uh, unarmed women and children and, and families across the West Bank. Many of these are recruited to the Israeli Defense Forces. They are, they are, they belong in jail, but they are in the, the Israeli Defense Force. No one can guarantee that there are not problems. Therefore, they have to be investigated and there has to be action taken every time something happens. But don't cut funding to people 
in great need. It's the worst possible response. Jan Eglund, I want to thank you for being with us. Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council speaking to us from Oslo. I'm Amy Goodman. This is another edition of Democracy Now!